Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith, sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Georgine Rice. This week, we'll look at the election, the massive red wave that wasn't. We'll sort through some contributing factors explaining the why. The Democrats have been far superior in communicating their message even if their message is pure baloney. We'll look at the delayed results, so very common now, and why it matters. Albert Moeller. You have a greater risk that there will be a loss of confidence in the integrity of the voting system. Plus, abortion was on the ballot, and we'll look at how the pro-life side did. Voters showed up and they voted to enshrine abortion in state constitutions. And what we need to do about it. We need to vote for lawmakers who will protect life and who will protect the preborn. All this and more. I'm Georgine Rice coming to you from Portland and my home station of KPDQ. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on 93.9 FM here in Portland and online via our website at kpdq.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Thanks for joining us. Well, it was not the election cycle we were expecting and at least for many of us hoping for. It was going to be a red wave, speaking of Republican victories across the nation. Some said it was going to be huge. Well, it wasn't. It was, generally speaking, a night that was better for Republicans than Democrats, but it wasn't a landslide. My colleague Bob Burney looks at why from WRFD, The Word in Columbus. Here's something that I believe. Not a Democrat. Never voted for a Democrat. Probably never will. I am not a Republican loyalist either. Uh, I cannot vote for a Democrat candidate with their stance on abortion, family, marriage, uh, gender, sexuality. I I can't do it. Uh, However, the Democrats for a long time have been far superior in communicating their message Even if their message is pure baloney, the Democrats, for a long time, have been far superior in communicating their message. And in so many cases, the Republicans have fallen right into the trap. Here's here's what I mean. The major message of Democrats for this election, don't worry about the economy, that'll take care of itself, and it's happening all around the world, and we know you're hurting, but don't worry about that. But the future of democracy is at stake in this election, because the Republicans are a bunch of radicals. They're a bunch of Looney Tunes, crazy election deniers, and if you allow them to be elected America, as we know it, will cease to exist. We heard that over and over and over again. Democracy is on the ballot. Democracy is on the ballot. Radical. Election deniers. Election deniers. How many times we hear that? Election deniers. Election deniers. Now, some of you may disagree with me on this. The Republicans should have stopped talking about the last election. Well, Bob, don't you believe it was stolen? At this point, that's irrelevant. It's over. The last election is over. And we're not going to overturn it. We're not going to do anything about it. Joe Biden is not going to leave office because of the last election. Whatever happened 
We need to deal with that legislatively, legally, and so forth. But why are Republicans still talking about the last election? Because it's important. I know it is. But you got the Democrats saying they're a bunch of election deniers. They're radicals. And then we have Republicans saying what the Democrats are accusing them of. I really believe that many Republicans fell into the trap. And you never give your enemy ammunition. And I think that many Republicans across the country gave the Democrats, rightfully or not, rightfully or not, gave them plenty of ammunition. There are more lessons to be learned as we look at Tuesday's election. Election cycle after election cycle, we've witnessed electoral contests that go into overtime. That is, we don't know the results for 24 hours, 48 hours, and sometimes much longer. It's akin to going to a football game. You sit through four quarters. Both teams put points on the board. The night ends, but the scoreboard is blank. They don't tell you who won. A week later, you find out, but... Well, you've moved on. Well, this pattern with elections is not good. It's not good for democracy. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. I want to go back to Election Day because that tradition in the United States has helped to build confidence in elections because Americans go to the polls together. They can see each other at the polls. They can see how the voting is taking place. They can have a pretty good idea, at least in our local precinct, at least in our own local voting place. There have been a lot of voters out today. I can see a lot of cars in the parking lot. I can see a lot of Americans lined up in this electoral process. There's just a certain amount of confidence that is put into the system by the fact that Americans go to vote and they know that at some point when the polls close state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, the counting is going to be well underway by people who should be trusted to be able to conduct the count and the count's going to be called into the state and the state is going to report it to the media and to the national government and thus over a course of hours there should be a pretty good idea of how Americans state by state, district by district, even location by location have voted. What is the signal voters have sent? Who will be representing us in offices high and low? Now, I pointed to the virus, the COVID-19 virus, the coronavirus, of course, as one of the culprits behind the modern confusion, because in the situation of the COVID-19 pandemic, Electoral officials, state by state, had to come up with and sometimes to improvise how voters would have the opportunity to vote, most importantly, in the 2020 electoral process. And remember that in most states, that included a primary election and then later, of course, the state-supervised participation in the national election. And that meant that in some states, ballots were simply mailed to all registered voters. In other states, you had drop-off boxes, you had mail-in ballots, you had all kinds of mechanisms put into place. And the reality is, Americans, many Americans said, we like this process, and thus we want to continue this process. And thus, there is also a political dimension to this. District by district, state by state, party by party, there were people who said, look, we think this is to our advantage, or this is to our disadvantage. But the point is this, the more abstract the process of voting becomes, the more days or even weeks that are involved in voting Well, you have a greater risk that there will be a loss of confidence in the integrity of the voting system and in the signal that voters are sending. Voters want the satisfaction of knowing 
soon after Election Day, how exactly did we vote? Who will lead us? Who is going to sit in Congress? What does this mean? But this gets to something else, which is the realization that there's no particular reason why those alternative forms of voting should lead to a greater difficulty in tabulating the vote. And so you have several states that have taken the step of saying, look, you can send in those ballots beginning on this date, and then there will be what is sometimes known as pre-canvassing or early canvassing. And what that means is not even in all cases that the votes are counted then, but that the ballots are verified, that sometimes the envelopes are opened, the ballots are stacked, or in some similar process, everything is made ready so that the votes that were cast by these alternative means can be counted at the very same time as the votes that are tabulated on Election Day. And that means that in some states, you're going to have results from all kinds of different forms of voting that are nonetheless going to come out pretty much as they would have soon after, if not in the evening of Election Day. But then you have some other states, and Pennsylvania right now is in the bullseye of this situation. In the state of Pennsylvania, the state law is that nothing can be done with those mailed-in ballots until the polls close on Election Day. And that means that in Pennsylvania, it might be a long time before we have any real knowledge of how the electoral results are going to turn out. Now, I just want to say it's a matter of moral reflection that that is not a good sign of a strengthening process of an electoral democracy. That is a sign of a problem. If citizens grow increasingly frustrated that the electoral results are taking so long to come in, you also have something else, and that is the opportunity for citizens to believe that there is a greater opportunity for malfeasance and for misconduct and misbehavior. Now, when it comes to the opportunity for corruption in elections, we need to recognize this isn't new. Accusations go back to the early stages of the American Republic. But governments have understood that it is a moral responsibility to decrease the opportunity for such malfeasance and to increase confidence in the voting system. Now, in our current political climate, quite frankly, there are those who are sowing seeds of suspicion, but there are also those who are not doing enough to eliminate opportunities for suspicion. In Robert Caro's magisterial biography of Lyndon Baines Johnson, you can look at one of Johnson's senatorial elections and basically come to the inescapable conclusion that people kept the polls open with ballots coming in, even from people who apparently did not exist, in order to get enough votes to clinch a Johnson victory. Or let's just say that the best-case scenario is that There seemed to be something of a miracle at the last minute in which an awful lot of people turned out to have voted overwhelmingly for Lyndon Baines Johnson, even if, and I say this intentionally, they didn't know they had done so. There were accusations of fraud in the 1960 U.S. presidential election, particularly located in Chicago, with a focus on an unusual pattern of votes that had advantaged the Democratic candidate John F. Kennedy even at the same time that there seemed to be a strange agreement between Democratic officials in the city of Chicago and members of the Kennedy family and their associates. It was then credited to Richard M. Nixon that he did not challenge the results of that extremely close 1960 presidential election, and that might have been one reason why voters had greater confidence in Nixon that explained his victory in 1968. But then again, if you mention Richard Nixon, you have to talk about the Watergate controversy and scandal and the fact that that also had to do with an election, which is why we need as many eyes as possible on a process that is done accurately 
but as quickly as possible without working in even more opportunity for not only misconduct to happen, but even for the seeds of suspicion to be sown. Americans had the right to expect that within a relatively short amount of time after they vote on Election Day, there should be a confident reporting of the results from the election in a way that satisfies a democratic impulse and fortifies voter confidence. And on the briefing today, I just also want to encourage us all not to rush to the conclusion that we know what the results are until we are actually given results. Don't trust polling data. Wait for the tabulation of the votes. And even if we're going to be waiting longer than we believe is morally right, we still have to wait for the numbers to come in. And then, of course, the arguments continue. Coming up, abortion was on the ballot. Voters showed up and they voted to enshrine abortion in state constitution. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court released its decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. For those of us in the pro-life movement, myself included, it was a sweet victory. It marked the culmination of decades of effort on behalf of the unborn to reverse Roe, that created right imposed on the Constitution to allow a woman to take the life of her unborn child. But for the pro-abortion lobby, it angered and motivated them. Abortion measures were on the ballot across the country. They rallied their voters, and the results, in a word, sobering. Nicole Hunt of Focus on the Family was a guest on my program. Do you think we were overly optimistic when Roe versus Wade was overturned, imagining that that was uh, really sufficient to give the people an opportunity to overturn Roe versus Wade in their respective states? Or do you think we were rightfully skeptical that this was going to be something that would happen overnight? I do think that there was some overt optimism that really resulted in a rush for a lot of abortion restrictions to be put in place. And, and you know, results from a study released by um, a, a, an abortion organization actually located here in Denver said that in the two months following the uh, row reversal, there was actually a net decline of 10,000 abortions in America. And so I think that these restrictions have actually demonstrated that, that they are saving lives. But I think what we underestimated was just how much slower it is to change culture on these opinions. You know, Roe v. Wade was decided 49 years ago, and a whole generation has grown up having casual sex and casual abortion. And to change the conversation, to redirect it and remind everyone that there really is a moral weightiness to these decisions and that we need to change our perspective on abortion, not just being a casual solution to a casual problem, but being a truly morally depraved decision and encouraging people to choose life, that is a much slower battle to fight. And I think maybe what we've, what we've seen in the election night results is that people's hearts and minds aren't quite there yet, even though the pro-life movement wants there to be these changes 
right? In, in constitutions and in statutory law, uh, people's hearts and minds aren't quite there yet. Yeah. I think for many who have been involved in the pro-life movement for many years, I being among them, uh, there's a, a degree of exhaustion. We have uh, worked hard for this day to come. Roe versus Wade was overturned. And it would have been glorious for uh, the American people to in the states where they had the opportunity to simply say enough is enough. But the work is far from being over. Let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the initiatives that were on ballots, the constitutional uh, amendments and mm-hmm. so on in Michigan, California, Vermont. What happened with regard to pro-life optimism and issues on Election Day? Right. So in Michigan, Vermont and California, voters were given an opportunity to enshrine abortion in their state constitution. And this is the trajectory that the abortion lobby is taking these discussions. Basically, what they're doing is they're creating many rows in each of the state constitutions. They're creating a right to an abortion in the state constitution. So in those three states, Michigan, Vermont and California, Voters showed up and they voted to enshrine abortion in state constitutions. The net effect of this is is really disastrous for pro-life laws in these states, because what will happen is for many of these states who already have pro-life laws on the books, those pro-life laws may very well be invalidated because a court will read that they are in conflict with the state constitution. And then secondly, it will be very difficult moving forward to pass any pro-life laws, because if they are in direct conflict with a right that's enshrined in the state constitution, it's very likely that the state courts will rule those statutes to be unconstitutional. So it really is devastating. What we saw in those three states um, in particular was a significant amount of pro-abortion lobbying money being spent. In Michigan alone, the abortion lobby group spent about $46 million to pass their proposal. And that was in contrast to the pro-life groups that had raised $17 million. So you can see it's a stark contrast. But the truth is, is the abortion lobby has everything to lose, and they are in it to win it. They know they have to. They're taking it very seriously because they have to. Their business model depends on selling abortions to Americans. And so they put their money where their mouth is, and it, it turned out for them. They were able to turn out voters, and they were able to pass this very, very tragic and painful policy that's not only going to hurt women, it's going to hurt children and it's going to hurt families because it's going to allow legalized abortions for minors without parental consent, without parental notification. And this is backwards. This is multiple steps backwards for the pro-life movement. Well, let's talk about what happened, uh, pro-life measures that failed in Kentucky and Montana. This was something of a surprise. Absolutely. So traditionally, looking at Kentucky and looking at Montana, these are more traditionally known to be pro-life states. Kentucky still has pro-life measures that are the law, but the question brought to the voters was whether the pre-born would be protected under the state constitution. Now, unfortunately, again, the abortion lobby was very active in Kentucky. They were actively trying to turn out voters who felt threatened by this constitutional provision, even though state law already protects life in that state. So they had a majority of voters, 52% showed up and said that they did not support protecting life in the state constitution. And that was in contrast to the 47% of voters that wanted to support and that did support the amendment. Now, Montana is a different story and very interesting because in that case, the question was put to the voters whether infants who are born alive during an abortion should receive medical care. 
And shockingly, the majority of Montana voters, 52%, said no, that baby should not receive medical care. Well, across the board, it seems that abortion uh, was a, a winning issue for those who supported abortion. I think it was underestimated in many of the projections that we heard from uh, pundits suggesting that uh, it really wasn't resonating with voters, that there were other issues that were more predominant. Your thoughts in general and included in that, your thoughts on the president who would like to enshrine Roe versus Wade in federal law. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that abortion was on the minds of a lot of people. I think for a lot of Americans, the grocery bill and the decline in our 401ks um, all were top of mind as well. But I do think that having abortion policies on the ballot turned voters out to vote against them in ways that perhaps they might not have showed up otherwise. Um, I think this is something that the uh, abortion lobby is going to tap into in the future. And I have no doubt, given the success that they've had in in shooting down these type of of abortion ballot initiatives uh, and supporting abortion in state constitutions, that this is going to continue to be a tactic we're going to see used by the left to try to promote abortion. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to bring it in all of the 13 states that currently restrict abortion. I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to take that specifically to the voters and have the voters vote on whether or not they want abortion to be enshrined in their state constitutions. That's something that we should be looking for and expecting and getting ready to fight against. With regard to the president's desire to codify Roe, I mean, I think we need to take this seriously. My my one hope is that we're holding on to the House And if pro-life candidates hold on to the House, then that's going to be a protection against the ability of the federal government to codify Roe at the federal level. It's important that Christians who are pro-life get out and they vote their values. We need to keep in mind that abortion policy can be legislated federally and at the state level. And so we need to vote for lawmakers who will protect life and who will protect the pre-born. Coming up, going back to basics. It seems like there's a lot of people in our world who are really blind as to their need for the good news. The Gospel, when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Georgine Rice. Many of the issues in our culture today are ominous, and the Christian message in our increasingly post-Christian world may seem like a precious gift that our neighbor really doesn't care to receive. But Paul in the book of Corinthians reminds us, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel is what we must go back to, what we should treasure and cherish. Lee Michaels turned to Steve Lagoon of RAS, the Religion Analysis Service, from AM 980, The Mission in Minneapolis. When we talk about the gospel, the good news, 
what do you find that, that people, I mean, for Christians, we, we kind of know what we're talking about, but we sometimes forget that when we talk with other people, they may not be familiar with some of the Christian terms we use. So what do you do or what do you find when people ask you about explaining the gospel? Well, you know, I think of that old statement, uh, do you want the good news or the bad news? If somebody comes up to you and asks you that question, and I think that works very well when we're talking about the gospel, because it seems like there's a lot of people in our world who are really blind as to their need for the good news. They're oblivious to the truth, and they are uh, blinded by the devil, really, and they're just kind of blindly going through life unaware of their need. And so sometimes when we talk to a person like that, we got to say, well, we, we got to give them the bad news first. And the bad news is that God, because of our sin and our separateness from God, we are on a road to eternity lost and in a condition of judgment before God. For the wages of sin is death, the scripture tells us. But then it moves in, Paul and Romans moves into the good news, the good news of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And and now kind of getting to your specific question, I was uh, a student at Oak Hills Bible College, and it was pretty exciting. And I remember one of the classes we were in, and the instructor was a guy named John Sanders. And he has written some books, maybe people have heard of him. Um, but he had the class do an assignment, which was to explain the gospel. So he gave everybody a piece of paper and said, I want you to define the gospel. Mm -hmm. You would think, okay, simple question. There's Christians there from a lot of different uh, evangelical denominations. And what, what was interesting about it is some kids wrote very little and other kids wrote like a whole page, just kept writing paragraph after paragraph. And this was the point of the lesson, I think, was that even though we might not explain it all in precise ways, we're going to have the same basic agreement. And it's going to be something around the fact that, uh, it's going to be centered around Christ. And it's going to, they're going to be saying something about Jesus and the person and work of Christ that, that somehow it has to do with Jesus and what he did for us on the cross and the resurrection. And uh, those are the key things that we're going to hear about in any explanation, and that's very biblical. So I think that's something that people can think about. If you were asked to explain the gospel, how would you do it? Yeah, I, I, when it comes to, you know, looking at the gospel over time with the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, you know, it's again, it's that faith in Christ and the faith of Abraham, and you, you look at some of those things. But when, when it comes to the Reformation uh, in two minutes, I mean, what was— uh, the purpose there, how was the gospel looked at before the Reformation and after the Reformation? So I think this was what Martin Luther was upset about, is that uh, during the Middle Ages, the, the church had come to distort the gospel and had taken it away from its original New Testament foundation of salvation by faith in Christ and, uh, you know, all the sola, sola faith, sola uh, Christus, you know, uh, sola scriptura, sola yep. faith and all that. Uh, it was all on the work of Christ for us, not the believer's work. And unfortunately, during the uh, Middle Ages, that had gotten lost sight of, and it became a gospel where salvation was found through the church and through the sacraments of the church, whereas 
Paul taught that there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5. So I try to say to my Catholic friends that I want you to look at what Paul wrote, that the gospel is about coming directly to faith in Christ, and we don't need to go through all the other roadblocks that are kind of set up. We Those are good. Things are good. Uh, serving Christ and being a part of his church are all good things. But what brings us salvation is the gospel, and, that, and that's what the Reformers brought us back to, is that salvation is a gift of God. It's a work that Christ has done for us, and it was done when Christ died on the cross. He said in John 19:30, it is finished. That means we don't have to add anything more to it. Uh, Christ paid the full price. And so uh, that is the good news of the gospel. Coming up, looking back at a pandemic and the killing of George Floyd at the hands of police. It seems like there's a perfect storm that took place in 2020. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, we've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. COVID-19 and the governmental response to the pandemic is one significant component that has served to shape our current political and cultural moment. Another spark that started the fire began on May 25th, 2020, when George Floyd was killed, his neck under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin. Floyd was black, Chauvin was white. What was unleashed was a series of riots and violent protests across our nation that were costly and polarizing in many ways. Doug Grotheis of Denver Seminary is the author of Fire in the Streets, How You Can Confidently Respond to Incendiary Cultural Topics. Grotheis was a guest of Gino Geraci on 94.7 FM, The Word, in Denver. You asked the question, who started the fire? And it seems to me, you know, you're, you're playing off the metaphor of the streets uh, burning in 2020 after the COVID crisis and the George Floyd crisis. But you're not just talking about a, a cultural fire. You're talking about also a metaphysical kind of a fire, something that ignites not just the imagination, but the way we think about things. Well, it really starts with literal fire. Right. The riots of 2020 that were really sparked by the George Floyd killing, that really caused a lot of us, I think, to wonder what was happening and how safe is our country. It seems like there's a perfect storm that took place in 2020 of a growing suspicion that this really is a problem, but then a ripening of the academic and media where you have this perfect storm of, of where people will go, this is going to generate enough rage that the whole world will take notice. Well, that's true. You had all the frustration related to the COVID problem. And then people break out into the streets. They have this image of a black man being killed by a white police officer. And then you have this narrative that this is just an emblem of how bad American society is. And it's been bad from the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's been racist from the beginning. It's racist now. And so we need to destroy things to make our point. 
And there was over a billion dollars of damage in the summer of 2020. And it was not just people taking to the streets. It was an idea that America is not just flawed, but actually terribly corrupt, and it has to be completely broken down. And done away with. Yeah. Another interesting thing to me about the origins of critical race theory and critical theory itself if we were to try to recreate socialism in Russia, socialism in China, this particular view here in the United States of America, it doesn't seem like it would play well in Venezuela, Russia, or China. Is this a kind of a unique strain of thinking tailored to undermine the United States of America? Well, it is because each country has its own history and background. So you have to understand what classical Marxism is, and I explain that and give a lot of original citations to it. And I talk about how Marxism led to the deaths of 100 million people in the 20th century at the hands of their own civil government. So we're talking about the reign of Lenin and Stalin in the USSR, the reign of Mao Zedong in China, Pol Pot in Cambodia, and so on. And this is horrendous. This is a terrible human disaster. So let's talk about that for just a minute, because we want to contrast and compare the accusation of Washington Jefferson being slave owners and Lenin and Stalin and Pol Pot and all of the rest killing 100 million human beings. Now, we know that slavery is immoral and it's wrong, but is it wrong to play the moral equivalency game at this point in our discussion? No, I don't think it is, because the founders, many of them were conflicted about slavery. And you can have a very jaded view of the Declaration and say, well, Jefferson's the primary author, and he said that all men are created equal, and he owns slaves. So the whole thing's just a crock. Or you could say that was his deepest conviction, but he wasn't living true to it. And so when you have Martin Luther King speaking at the capital of the United States, I think it was 1964, He says we're here to cash a check, basically. The Declaration and the Constitution are promissory notes that we need to live up to. And that's the view that I take. So I don't want to burn down the Declaration or burn down the Constitution. I think if you read them with any charity and try to find what the intention of the authors were, you'll find something actually very noble. And that's what Abraham Lincoln appealed to. That's what actually the freed slave Frederick Douglass appealed to. He said you really see the seeds of freedom and equality in the Declaration and in the Constitution, but we have to live up to them. We're not wanting to destroy them and start some other form of civil government. A republic is too good to do that. One of the things I wanted to talk about is the relationship of atheism to Marxist philosophy, whether we're talking about Karl Marx or whether we're talking about critical theory or critical race theory. They argue argue that atheism is just a lack of belief in gods and that it's an economic philosophy. And the reason why they had to be so draconian towards the church was because the church contained power and were instruments of oppression. But if the church will stop being an instrument of oppression, well, it's okay for it to exist. Talk a little bit about the relationship between atheism and the presence of a Judeo-Christian worldview, or even the presence of historical biblical Christianity in a Marxist setting? Well, Marx was extremely antagonistic to religion. 
he thought, as you said, that religion oppressed people. It gave them the hope of an afterlife so they didn't have to worry about creating a better world in this life. So here's a famous quote from Marx. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. And he also said elsewhere that the criticism of religion is the basis of all criticism. That is criticism of an unjust social situation. So Marxism is incompatible with the Judeo-Christian worldview on many levels. But for one thing, uh, it doesn't believe that there is any kind of God-ordained authority in the world. Mm -hmm. It believes that any kind of free market situation or what he would call capitalist situation is oppressive and alienates the workers from the fruit of their labor. And that is intrinsically wrong. And it's not that you can reform that system. It has to be overturned. It has to be a revolution. So biblically speaking, there's lots of reasons to try to reform society and try to bring about a more just social order. But this has to be done in the fear of God, you see, and that's what Marxism eliminates. Coming up. Black Lives Matter was ingenious in choosing the name of the organization. Right. You know, how can you be against an organization called that? More with Doug Grothuis when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Georgine Rice. As we reflect on events of the last three years, we recognize that there are some pretty radical ideas being proposed and implemented right before our eyes. You see it in elements of the Black Lives Matter movement, and you can see it in the embrace of all things LGBTQ+. But few have made the linear connection between these critical theories and Marxism. I'll let Doug Grothuis explain as he continues his conversation with Gino Geraci on the book Fire in the Streets. Historical Marxism seems to be very different from the secularism, eroticism, and relativism of critical theory and critical race theory. Well, it's a critical race theory is a development. So one very significant piece that I skimmed over very quickly Mm -hmm. is the philosopher Herbert Marcuse, who basically wed Marx with Freud. So Freud had a very sexualized view of the human being and believed that society was based on repressing sexual urges. Now Marcuse looked at that and said, what we really need to get the revolution cranked up is to release these sexual urges. So the constraints on sexuality through monogamy or through heterosexual behavior need to be lifted so the sexual energy will be brought to bear to bring about the ultimate revolution. So let's get rid of those taboos. Let's include sexual minorities in the revolution and let's make an appeal to people of color to get them on board and expand the idea of oppression beyond just the economic to the racial, and also the sexual. So Marcuse is a key figure. So I spend quite a bit of time with him in the book. Now, he died in 1979, Mm -hmm. but I think, as I mentioned, he mentored Angela Davis, who was a very significant black radical in the 1960s. She's still alive, and she's still active. Uh, She wrote the foreword to Patrice Cullors' biography, and Patrice Cullors is one of the, or was one of the founders of Black Lives Matter. 
You see, a lot of this comes out of white guilt, and I get that term from yes. Shelby Steele. Like, America is unjust, terrible things are happening, so we need to just throw a lot of money at good black causes to sort of atone for our sin by giving money to radical black causes. And it ends up that Black Lives Matter was ingenious in choosing the name of the organization. Right. You know, how can you be against an organization called that? But when you look at their philosophy and you look at their original mission statement, which I quote in my book, they are against the nuclear family. They want to bring it down. They want to affirm the LGBTQ perspective on life, especially in the black community, because African-Americans in the U.S. have traditionally not been all that excited about that. Thank you for joining us for the Christian Outlook. There's more of Gino's conversation with Doug Rothheis on Fire in the Streets. You can find the full interview at ChristianOutlook.com. While you're on our site, remember to subscribe to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin, producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, Mike Cook, Alex Perez, and James Blend, I'm Georgine Rice. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. It's time for Medicaid Open Enrollment in Delaware. From Wilmington to Bethany Beach, connections run deep in the first state. And AmeriHealth Caritas Delaware is dedicated to connecting you to care. To learn more, visit AmeriHealthCaritasDE.com or call 800-996-9969.